Hi, and thanks for listening to this next installment of Torah at Work. In this series, we discuss challenges, insights, practical strategies for navigating the business management workplace as a Torah Jew. We're going to break down workplace challenges by categories, as we have in the past, practical, ethical, halachic, and social. In addition, this session is being recorded during Shovavim, the period of time that many communities uh, in which they are working on family purity and improving marriages and relationships. And our last segment of this recording session will contain a special focus on gender relationships. That said, I would advise listeners at home and in the car or wherever they are not just to skip to the end right now uh, because we have a lot of valuable material and insights to discuss before then. So I am privileged to have with me tonight, along with our studio audience, <laughs> thank you, uh, to have Shalamis Klein, Chief Risk Officer of Emory University and Emory Healthcare, and Shlomo Storch, the CEO of Networks, that's with an X, networks.com. So without further ado, let's get started. Um, okay, so let's start just by introducing your careers and, uh, and how you got to your careers. So the first question for the night, before we get into our uh, challenges and solutions, uh, Shalamis, can you sum up in a couple of sentences what a risk officer is? Okay, and Jonathan, her husband, is in the audience. He's already laughing. <laughs> so what, what is it? And, uh, and the real question is, does it mean that you can get my neighbor's son into Emory? <laughs> Those are two separate questions, for sure. Um, so as my husband will tell you, the risk manager is the one who backs into a parking spot rather than backing out of a parking spot because it's considered much safer. Um, risk managers are trained to help folks assess the pros and cons, the strengths and weaknesses of uh, new ventures, partnerships, departments, uh, programs, that sort of thing. Hopefully before they go forward with the new initiative, sometimes we are brought in after there's been an adverse event. Um, and in that case, we help folks understand or try to understand what happened, what went wrong, and how can we prevent it from happening again. And as far as the more important question, <laughs> getting my neighbor's son I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and Shlomo, what does your company do and what is your particular role? Um, so first, at a particularly stressed out time for me once, when I was traveling to Israel, as I do often, and I was in Amsterdam, and the security guard asked me, what do you do for a living? And I answered as I felt, I babysit all day, because I feel like I'm just babysitting. And I got pulled into a side room and thoroughly searched <laughs> and checked out because, and I was like, no, 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 I'm joking, I run a company, I'm just really stressed out, I feel like I'm babysitting. So, uh, but, but I, I, I've digressed, that's my first anecdote of the night. Um, the. Uh, Networks, my company, the company that I run, what we do is we help people find um, contractors in their local area. So we focus on all residential home services across the United States of America and any major metropolitan area is where we work. Um, what I do in the company, I started with the company in Israel about nine, nine and a half years ago. Um, I took over as CEO about three, about three years ago now, a little more than three years ago. Um, and that coincided with my move here to Atlanta. For those of you who, who know me, that's about right about now is when I moved here to Atlanta. Um, so we're, we're about 150 people between Israel and Atlanta. Um, and we're a sales organization, marketing organization, technology organization. Uh, we basically cover it all. Um, so in a short 
that's what we do. And um, and I guess I'll get into some of the other stuff maybe um, as we as we continue on. Okay. So uh, just one follow, quick follow-up question. Um, and you, if you want to push this to later on in the program, that's also fine. But you seem to be fairly young uh, to be a CEO of a substantial company. So uh, I think the first question would be, how, in what way, how did Hashem lead you down this path? So um, that's a good question. First of all, I appreciate you saying that I'm very young. You didn't say it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't asked you a um, question yet. So, okay. um, so a, a few interesting facts about me. Uh, I did not graduate university, so I don't have any sort of college degree. Um, and I actually have a friend in the audience who's probably smirking now because not only did I not finish college, um, I don't even have a high school diploma. I did not graduate high school either. Uh, so I, I grew up in the United States. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And I guess I was kind of like a troubled kid. I was, uh, I was always I, cre more creative, musically inclined than I was uh, studious didn't get along with school. My dad was my principal. That helped me a lot navigate uh, and stay in elementary school, which was a challenge. Um, and I, I landed in Israel at some, I dropped out of high school. I was working many different odd jobs. Um, and I landed in Israel in 2001, 2002. Um, and, you know, started getting my life back together. And I got married in 2007, needed to find a job after learning for a little bit. And I found a great job in a great company. Uh, my first job was, you know, not, not such a great company, but second job was good. Um, and right when I was um, about a month into the job, or actually it was right before I started, uh, I got the news that my father, who was um, getting progressively more ill at the time, needed a kidney transplant. And uh, from Israel, and I come from a large family, and from Israel, I, I, I don't know why, I, I don't know, for, for me it, it was pretty straightforward. If I can donate a kidney to my father, then I'll do that. I'm like, sure. Um, so I was the first of the boys to be tested, and I raised my hand to do it. And um, that in and of itself is a whole story, but I donated a kidney to my father in 2009. This Shushan Purim will be 10 years since we did that. Um, and that was a transformational period in my life. Um, I didn't, wasn't really thinking about it, it just kind of happened. And from there, I think that my entire perspective, and, and it was, talk about a paradigm shift, everything changed uh, for what I was doing. I, was, I started my company in sales, I was in account support, I did that for a number of years, um, and then I was running a small team of maybe three or four people, and I thought I, you know, I thought I was the bomb, I thought I was awesome, and I was a great manager, and I was going places, and I was so frustrated because I could not get anybody to do anything even remotely well. No one was as good as I was. Uh, and I dealt with this on a day-to-day -day basis. And at the time, I had started traveling to Atlanta uh, for, for work, and I was working with the team here. And I used to stop, I used to come to Atlanta, and then I would go to my parents who live in New Jersey for Shabbos, and then I'd go back to Israel um, Saturday night. And, and we had twins right around the same time, so my wife was not happy with me. But I was doing that circuit, and I'd go to my father, and then my father, um, Really, this is how it happened. He said, read this book. you got to read this book. And I was like, I don't, like, you know, one of it was a Ken Blanchard book, if anybody knows what that is. I had no inkling about any of the stuff about leadership development or character development. Uh, but there was one specific book called uh, Energy Leadership, which he said, read it. And I was like, nah, nah, nah. Anyway, it was a long Shabbos afternoon. I read the book. And 
it was a cool book. It was nice. And I decided I would apply two of the techniques from that book. I went back to Israel, met with, met with my team. And the techniques were treat people like adults. They behave like adults. Treat them like children. They behave like children. Uh, that was one. And the second one was um, we don't live your life at the, at the, well, let's frame it a little differently. Life is about making conscious choices, not just having life happen to you. And that reframed my entire perspective of me, myself and business. Um, and about a year and a half later, I became CEO of the company, which wasn't really my trajectory. So I looked back at that and I was like, you know, that, that interaction, that book that turned me on to this whole idea of actually developing yourself, character development, not even leadership development, just character development, um, kind of, I think, created that, helped me create that opportunity where I kind of got to the, the place where I am now. Um, which, by the way, is probably a lot of just hashkacha and luck. So, um, you know, I thought the parking lot looked fuller because, um, you know, I, I was going to be here, but, you know, I, I don't I don't think it was, you know, I'm still not drawing the big crowds. Anybody who's here is probably for you, except for that guy. That guy's with me. Um, so that's kind of like my story. I'll, uh, you know, it's a, um, I wouldn't say it's so romantic necessarily, but it was a turning point for me that gave me a lot of perspective on what does it mean to be a better person, a better leader, and, and how to not live at the, I forgot the exact terminology. Don't live at like the outcome of like, or have things happen to you all the time. Make choices. So conscious choice is the big one. Okay, thank you. So let's, um, with that in mind, we'll make, conscious, we'll make a conscious decision to go forward. And, uh, <laughs> or or and, to cut me off. And to talk, <laughs> to talk about uh, the, first, uh, the first section here of this, of this, uh, um, of this uh, installment is going to be about practical challenges. And let's start, you know, we've had a few of these uh, recordings and there's been um, a, a few times the uh, there's been the subject of the work-life balance or life-work balance um, has been a constant discussion and it's a constant discussion not just here but all over the workforce and how we have a hard time managing that balance between our careers and what we call our lives. So uh, Shalamis, I know you, I think you have a, a particular angle on how to balance those two things. Still working on it. <laughs> Um, first, let me say, uh, I, I guess as a, a way to preface my remarks, I think many of the audience know that Jonathan and I um, were not able to have children, um, and so I just want to get that out there in a matter of transparency because I think that um, certainly makes a huge difference um, to folks trying to balance the work life, uh, develop a career, and so on and so forth, and I really have no idea what our lives would have been like had we been able to have that children. But having put that aside, um, so the work-life balance, I, I, it sounds like a great goal. I like to think of it more as a journey um, than a goal because I think that there are, it, I think of it in terms of a pendulum that swings back and forth between a focus on work and a focus on life. And the truth is that in some ways, you never really feel satisfied. And maybe that's okay, maybe it's okay to feel that tug um, between the two. Um, I personally struggle with it all the time. I do have a phone that I keep near my bed because I've been known to get calls in the middle of the night um, and I have to take those calls. I do try very hard to carve out dinner time uh, with my husband. If you ever look on my calendar, Tuesday from six to seven is dinner time with my husband. Sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. 
um, I think folks try and come up with ideas around blocking time for email, uh, not responding to every email in real time, but maybe blocking out some time in the afternoon uh, to focus on it. I find myself constantly asking, what's the smartest thing I can do now? And that helps me get uh, to through the next few minutes when I feel kind of a tug uh, between the two. But I, I, I really don't feel that I have a perfect answer. Shlomo, um, you mentioned before that you were traveling and you had a particularly stressful, anxious time. Um, are, are your daily routines in the office or in your job, are they generally uh, stress-filled? If I choose to make it stressful, it certainly is. But, um, but yeah, I mean, listen, I have, um, besides for the, the, you know, the, the employees that work for me, uh, you know, there's key stakeholders who I work for. So I don't own a company. I, I'm an employee. And uh, you know, that certainly, and, and there can be many cooks and many ideas and uh, many objectives and goals. So there's certainly a lot of stresses and, and potential pressures. Um, but besides for that, I think in general, there are a lot of people, myself included, who are, it can get, you know, you get really engrossed or obsessed about what you're working on. And it, it's constantly playing in your head, especially if you're um, working in a, in a job, in an environment that's more of a, a technology company or a startup environment where you're constantly trying to solve problems. And um, especially with the technology today, you don't have to be in your desk plugged in in order to solve ch challenges or even think about some of the problems. Uh, so I spend a lot of my day solving problems or, uh, you know, we like to call them opportunities. And uh, so finding all the opportunities that we can to solve a lot of these challenges. Uh, I'll give you an example. We use a, a data visualization tool that helps us access every little piece of our business. It basically shows pictures of what's happening anywhere in the business. So I can spend hours on my phone going chart by chart and just reviewing over and over. What are the weak points? What are the strong points? What do I got to do better? You know, how are we doing in sales? How are we doing account support? How is this piece doing and that piece doing? And I, I, I can and have spent a very long time doing that. Um, so, you know, and, and I used to be of the mindset that I think before I was in, in this role as, a, as the you know, CEO of the company, that there is no such thing as work-life balance in today's day and age. Um, I'm, I'm a millennial. Millennials are just like, you're all in or you're not all in. That's like the idea. That's what people think outside of here. And Meaning it's either or? Either it, It's like they're, they're, there's no such thing as a work-life balance. It's like, that's like shtuyot, they say. You know, it's like, that's for like, you know, that's for the other generations. But in this generation, um, it's, it's less applicable. It's certainly in the startup world, it's, uh, that's the mentality. Uh, you know, put in 12, 14-hour days and you know you're, you're often in the startup world you're giving equity in a company so if they make it then you can make a little pretty penny and 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 you know build a life for yourself so there's that mentality certainly in israel in the israeli in the israeli startup scene where um where i had initially come from um but shalom do you have a, a comment the only thing i was going to comment on it is I, I don't think the struggle is limited to to millennials oh no yeah <laughs> for sure i was i i, could, I, I i'm relating I, yeah, I, I think it's an ideal that people strive for, and it sounds nice, but I think that if you're totally committed to your career and your family, you always feel the struggle, and, and it's not about choosing, it's about accepting the struggle. So I would add a little to that, I agree. Um, 
But added to that is, I think, like on a practical level, there are some things um, that one can do that can have a major impact on a practical level. So we're talking, this is called Torah at work, so there's obviously a hishkafic overtone or objective here in what we're talking about. We're not just um, working a job. I also believe in Hashem, I believe in God, I want to try to keep the Torah and the mitzvahs, and I want to build a beautiful Jewish family um, and contribute to the community and to the Jewish world at large. Uh, and it's really hard to do when you're when you're just like obsessed with work and and it opens you up to being anxious, stressed out, having a harder time choosing to not be that way. Um, and particularly around the phone. So I'll, I'll share with you just a few things that I've done recently. So the end of the year, quarter four is always never fun. Either even if we're hitting our objectives for the year, at the end of the year, it's always like you know we can do a little bit better or we missed the mark or even if we'd exceeded the mark. There's always at the end of the year there's always a uh, um, an added sense of urgency. Uh, this year, for me, uh, it was a part. It was it was a it was a stressful time. Uh, we moved offices, so we went from a little small office to a really big, nice office, uh, which is more of a risk. Um, the is that right, Shlomis? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, and I can't say our neighbors are upstairs from us are thrilled either. There's an, an additional risk there. Um, and, and there's a lot of moving pieces. You know, we've crossed the threshold of 100 people here in Atlanta, and now we're at you know, 120, and, and, and things get more complicated as they get bigger and bigger. And I found myself just like almost robotic going through the motions of the day-to-day. -day. Um, I'd come home, I'd eat, see the, you know, see the kids, I'd be on my phone, and I, I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And more than that, my work was getting to me. I was getting stressed out. Then Hanukkah happened. And uh, for those of you who may know, I lost my sister, uh, my, the youngest in my family, about a year and a half ago. And the school that she was in, in, uh, in Washington, in the Shiva of Greater Washington, um, they did a, a, um, a program in her honor on Hanukkah, or Li'uli Nishmas, where, and Rabbi Zevi Katz is the principal of that high school. And um, what it was, was for the girls to commit to a few different, uh, a few different commitments over the course of Hanukkah, and some of the commitments were not to, um, not to listen to secular music, not to um, watch any movies, to participate in Hanukkah, and to sing Ma'os Tzor each night. Now, I did not think, you know, that was the hardest thing for me, by the way. Um, I just, it's just a hard time, like, repeating the last stanza of every one, it just bugs me. Um, and there were a few other pieces to it. And, and I had, and at the same time, so for my wife and I decided we we're gonna join, my wife actually went to Tamima uh, High School where she, um, I think there was about 15 or 20 girls who also joined and signed up for this. And my life started to change. And I, I did a few other things. One critical thing was I took my phone and I did not bring it into my bedroom. Now I'd be willing to bet that if I'd ask everyone in this room and all the listeners, if you bring your phone into your bedroom, and I'm willing to bet that most of you will raise your hand, but you do. Honk if you do. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you need your phone. It's your alarm clock. It's so two o'clock in the morning. I wake up for whatever reason, and what's the first thing I do? I check my phone. I wake up in the morning. First thing I do, check my phone. I'm checking WhatsApp. I'm checking Slack. I'm checking my email, and I'm immediately confronted with hopefully not too many challenges, but there's there's something there that I'm going to solve, or I check the news, which is even worse. So no matter what I do, my day is framed in this miserable and horrible place, and. I left, leaving my phone out of my room, first of all, my phone stays charged, which is, which is great. Um, second of all, my, my entire waking up had changed, 
and my I was able to create an intentional day where I was not just at the mercy of my phone. And I'm not saying don't use your phone. I'm saying use your phone, but you don't need your phone in your room. And it, it I sleep better, I wake up better, I'm actually davening better. There's been I've, I've now read the studies that talk about what the screen time does to your eyes, like as you're going to sleep, right? As you're like, I'm looking at this and then I'm on my phone for two hours, but I get into bed and I'm just like, you know, Twitter, um, you know, whatever, Facebook, which I don't do most of, but I, you know, email and then all the data and all the reports and all that stuff. And then the news to top it off. And then I go to sleep, like try not to dream of all that. Um, and I don't fall asleep. So that's been, that has been transformational. I've actually uh, recommended to everyone in my company as we were talking about New Year resolutions at the beginning of the year, uh, was to try it. You know, try just putting your phone aside and see what it changes in your life. Specifically at nighttime. Specifically at nighttime. Like put it aside and then start your day without your phone, right? And it's transformed and, it, and it's have, other things have come from there. So Shalom, as you, you mentioned before, just a couple minutes ago, that you're unable to do that. Right. And why is that? Well, so one of the things that I do at Emory is, um, actually I'm a member of a team of four folks who are put on notice every time there is an adverse event involving an international traveler. And like many other academic medical centers, Emory has a very large and growing international platform. And uh, things happen. And so we are uh, part of this team on a rotating basis. And knowing that Europe and Africa and other parts of the world are many hours ahead of us, that phone rings at 2, but it might be 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, and that phone call simply starts a series of other phone calls of, to folks who need to know about what happened and tracking it. So I'm not able to do that. But I would agree with Shlomo that it's about looking for opportunities to relieve some of that pressure in the pressure cooker. You know, and whether you can get away every few weeks for a long Shabbos, it's not, I, again, I realize it's not always possible with an extended family or with kids, um, but we do make a habit every nine weeks to get away for a Shabbos, Jonathan and I. We do that. Um, I, Where was the last uh, destination? Jonathan, you can answer also. <laughs> it's, it's not so much about the destination, it's just about getting away. <laughs> Um, someplace quiet, exactly. Um, spend uh, a lot of time with our nieces and nephews. Uh, we have many, thank God, and they're all over uh, many states, many countries. And so again, it's looking for those um, special, unique ways to uh, have a study buddy. Uh, I have two study buddies, one locally uh, and one uh, in another city. It's a phone uh, study buddy. And so- What do you study? Um, so uh, with one of them, we're doing uh, Rabbi Sachs' uh, Ethics of Responsibility, and then the other one studying um, Kohelas. And that's every week? It is every week. Each one is every week. I'll add one more, you know, on the, on the Hashkafic side. So um, bitachon is something that's often thrown around. It's a word that people throw out there, right? Trust in God. Um, and you only have to do your shtadlis, you only have to do what you have to do. Um, so you do your best, and if it doesn't work, you throw up your hands and say, you know, God, it's all, it's all in your hands. Um, and there, I've had a, a uh, over the last couple months, I've had an, a, an insight into bitachon and how you can potentially apply it um, to your work and life, uh, which has been, you know, very impactful for me. Um, you know, they say the story about the guy who um, 
he was, fell off a cliff or something, and he calls out to God, please save me. And then he gets snagged on a tree, and he's hanging there, and he says, oh, I'm good. It's okay, God, I'm safe. I don't need your help anymore. And I feel like that bitachon is often used as that, um, as that, a place to hang your hat on when everything goes wrong. And while that's good, and it's a good tool to pull you out of the challenges that you may face, there's so much more opportunity to use bitachon in an intentional way and to frame your life within that bitachon. So for example, um, you know, if you, before there's a problem, if you focus on everything that happens is from Hashem, my financial, whatever I'm receiving has been decreed already. Uh, any success that I'm having, any, any pains that I'm having is something that's already been, that's, God has taken care of it. Then going into your day, whatever's going to happen to you, you don't have to react with the bitachon, everything will be okay, because you're already framing your day within the bitachon. Uh, and for me, that's been really instrumental is to remember uh, two specific things, uh, my mantra to myself, which is every morning. Um, one is, Hashem chesed that Hashem, those who trust in Hashem, His kindness will surround you. And the other um, is, choose life, is that you need to you know, you have, to, you have to make a choice. And you can't, you, if you want to be, um, and if you want to have a life, uh, and you also want to be successful in work, you have to first, you have to make that, set that intention of, I choose to have a life, I choose to spend time doing this, I choose to get away if I need to get away, I choose to put my phone away, or I choose to, you know, dab in, whatever, whatever your priority is that is not necessarily about um, work or what someone else wants from you. Um, and that to me had been, has been uh, extremely impactful um, on the bitachon side. So again, to frame your day within the bitachon as opposed to the day happens and then, oh, okay, I have bitachon or I have trust in God. Oh, I'm sorry, bitachon, which is essentially uh, the, the trust or the belief that everything that God, Hashem does is uh, for the good and that he is taking care of us. I hadn't heard it phrased that way. Right. So I would add to that supplementing that, Shlomo, I, a couple points. Number one, there's no question it's about attitude, right? And what lenses you put on. If you put on, um, an, a, if you have an expectation that things will work out, you trust in God and you trust in yourself and your skill set and folks who, t who support you, your family, um, you have a very different view of the possibilities. The other thing that I would say is that we have to be mindful that we're not talking about two separate worlds here, a Jewish world and a secular world, right? Um, it's all one world. And how we choose to behave and conduct ourselves and our attitudes um, are one and the same for both. And I, I think it even goes to how we kind of decide what our priorities are and how we balance things. Uh, we need to be mindful that it's one world. And there's a tendency, I think, at times folks to look at it as two different worlds, but I would suggest not. Do you have any, um, this is for Shalamas, do you, do you have any difficulties with your phone and your relationship with it? <laughs> well, well, fortunately, as I said, I, I'm not a very big IT person. I don't do social media. Um, I use it strictly for phone and um, email. The one lesson I have learned which ha helps me manage my stress level 
is that I've learned over time that simply because somebody is calling you or emailing you doesn't mean they respond on the spot. You can manage their expectations and in doing so manage yours. Shlomo is smiling. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I, I always feel the sense of urgency to respond to every email or text that I get, except for yours for some reason. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just realized as I'm saying that, I, like, I have a few responses that, I, that I've taken my time. Um, but, but no, I, I, there's always this sense of like, just because you see it, you have to respond to it right away. And um, it, it's not true. And you can, you can manage people's expectations and you don't have to respond right away. And this um, is even though you have people who are depending on you for an answer. They need a decision. They have a question that's going to have to make an urgent decision. Something well, quick. you have to prioritize, obviously, you know, but um, so we, we can get into um, you know, time management is something that I study a lot and I am constantly, it's a journey, as you, as you said before, um, and I certainly do not have it figured out. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a famous book written by Steve, Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders. And he talks in there about a time management technique, which is a quadrant of four sections that help you figure out where you should be managing your time. I think it's originally from uh, President General Eisenhower. I think he's the one who came up with it. And the idea is, is that there's, there's, there's two different types of things that are, there's, there's urgent issues and there's non-urgent issues, and there's important, important issues and non-important issues. And to get into the habit of managing your time or even a response, you have to ask yourself, is this an urgent issue? And if it's an urgent issue, is it important? Okay, an urgent and important issue has to be dealt with. An urgent issue that's not important possibly can be put on the side. And then you have many, many non-urgent um, and non-important issues or non-important and urgent issues that seem to be like, right now you gotta deal with it and you gotta respond to it right now. So a part of it is being able to distinguish and differentiate between what needs to be answered right now. So when my wife is asking me um, uh, something that I need, I have to be careful here, but when my wife is, uh, wants a response on something that needs a response right now, I recognize that and I respond immediately. Um, but if it's something that doesn't, I'm sorry. Well, any, any communications. So I think, I think if your wife is texting you, you immediately have to respond. Um, that's number one. Uh, but anything else on a business level? <laughs> on a business level, certainly there are, uh, um, you have to be able to differentiate. If there's an urgent matter, then you've got to take care of it. Then yes. You, know. you have to exercise judgment. But you also learn in the process that with few exceptions, perhaps your boss right, or a board member, just because something is important to the third party doesn't mean it's important to you at the moment, right? And so that helps, you know, that, that will take you in a different direction in terms of when and how you decide to respond. Just yeah. because they're anxious about something doesn't mean it's important. Does that, does that apply to your boss as well? No, with the exception of the boss, right? You always want to keep your boss happy. Um, but most of the emails I get are not from my I'll also add, I, I forgot the exact saying, but a graceful no is like a, it's an art to say no in a graceful way that I can't answer your question right now, or I can't help you right now. Um, you know, we have a, we have a, we have an open door policy in, in my, anybody can walk into my office. Um, and they do. And I've learned how to say, I can't give you the attention that you need right now. And I don't want to be, I don't want to do a disservice to you. And I communicate that to people. So let's set a time of, and let's find out a time when we can do that. And I think it applies um, to messages as well. 
Also, the other thing that I always tell my people is that unless the building is is on fire, nothing is on is as urgent or that has to happen right now. Like, there's no reason that you need a response right now. If anything, it's probably better to sit on it and think about it and chew it over a little bit before you go and make a rush decision or or start doing things um, to try to solve a problem. If the building's on fire, yes, bang my door down and you know drag me out of my office. I think that's part of being a boss or a supervisor is learning what kinds of things need an answer immediately versus what kinds of issues are better sleeping on. You have to think about that. Let's move towards uh, this, the next um, segment, which is on ethical or halachic challenges in the workplace or at home, because it's all the same. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the first question, Shalamis, is um, can, you, uh, can you share with us an example when you had to make a decision about expenses or reporting from your, your perspective that was a challenge for you? Sure. So uh, one of the most common areas of ethical um, perhaps moral behavior that we need to deal with in the business setting is what I is referred to as the conflict of interest, conflict of commitment, and that sort of thing. So I had a couple of situations this year actually where I was asked, as an Emory individual, I was asked to sit on an outside board um, and I accepted. The question for me uh, was whether the time should be taken as vacation or not. Right? So Emory is paying me for the time that I sit on the outside board. Do they get any benefit from it? And it probably amounts to about six days a year, including vacation time, prep time. I'm sorry, a travel time, a board time, and prep time. I talked with our general counsel. I talked with my boss, or one of my two bosses, the executive vice president for health affairs at Emory, and we ultimately got to a point where we appreciate or recognize the fact that having an Emory, in this case an Emory person, sit on a non-Emory board could be a win-win for both parties because likely there are things that I'm going to learn from the other institution that I can bring back to help Emory. And so ultimately we decided Emory would pay me for my time and it would not count as vacation. Similarly, um, I'm off tomorrow actually to uh, visit Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. I've been asked with five other institutions to visit with them to assess their enterprise risk management program. Same deal, I'm gonna be out of the office for two days. Emory is paying me. The third party covers my expenses, is that vacation time or not? Went through the same algorithm. Is it possible that Emory will benefit from the time that I spend at Carnegie Mellon? And the answer is absolutely. It becomes a win-win. And it's just part of networking. With regard to the expenses, that's an interesting one. So imagine that you go on a business trip. Uh, certainly your employer covers your expenses and then you decide to add a day before or after vacation time. So you have to be very careful, squeaky clean as we like to say, that you are submitting expenses in the appropriate way, not charging your employer for time, uh, expenses that were incurred while you were not wearing your employee hat. It sounds like you took a lot of time and, and, and deliberated significantly over this decision. I, I did. Um, you know, when we talked- Was that paid time? 
<laughs> yes, they pay me for thinking. They pay me f to worry about what could go wrong. Yeah, it was paid to. Uh, Shlomo, any, anything similar? Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you had the other day when we were talking, you had mentioned that, you know, as a Jew, we have to be, and, and really it's the same world, and you said that earlier, and there is no distinction, but we also are a representation of um, the Jewish people yep. and of God, and it's critical to go above and beyond not to even allow, allow an ounce. And you had mentioned something about like splitting the bill, even with your husband when on company time at, at, and going to that extreme. Um, you know, and, and I think that's, that's critical of just to, to maintain that um, integrity. It's the difference between, you know, it's like the right thing to do or do the right thing. You know, the right thing to do is probably, you guys could just pay for the mail and the company and the company, like they're probably totally okay with it and it's not a big deal. But is it is it like you know doing the right thing? Like, and the right thing is to probably not probably the right thing is to differentiate that. No, we're going to go above and beyond and maintain that that standard. Um, I also think that um, you know some of the challenges that I face or I could potentially face, um, you know, it, a lot of it revolves around like financial reporting. There's a lot of different ways that you can report financially. Uh, we deal with customers, right? So there's a lot of different things that you know. It's more of like a moral question. I don't feel it as a halachic or like an, a, an ethical question. How many customers do you have? So um, we have about 12,000 customers nationwide. But more than that, we have people who are not necessarily customers that are using our service, um, which is in the millions per year. Uh, but paying customers, um, you know, who are contractors who work with us, um, it's, you know, close to 12,000. Um, so there's there's all sorts of... Um, I won't get into some of the techni technicalities, but there's all sorts of decisions that we make on a daily basis that are, you know, hey, we're a for-profit business, so why should we not uh, do it this way versus the other way? And we try to always go back to the values of the company, and, and um, on a personal level, I also evaluate for myself, am I doing something that's 100%, is it gray? And there's a lot of gray, there's a ton of gray out there. There's a lot of different things that we can do. I mean, in, in the marketing world, there's many, many different types of gray types of gray marketing that you can do, which is not great and probably is not going to deliver the best experience to our customers, but it's acceptable and it's okay. Uh, so those, those are sort of like the types of things that we, uh, that we grapple with. But in my business, at least, there's not like, you know, some of the halachic challenges that, you know, others would face on a regular basis. I'll share with you some of the, there's some interesting, you know, we're, we're, a, we're uh, Can we just pause you for one second, yeah. Shalom, you I a just wanted one caveat. I don't think either one of us is suggesting that there aren't others out there, Jewish, not Jewish, Orthodox, not Orthodox, who don't think similarly, right? We're not at all suggesting that. It's simply, as you suggested, there are so many opportunities in a non-Jewish work setting to bring Kiddush Hashem into the workplace. And so you like to think that you, as I said earlier, are conducting yourself squeaky clean, right, above and beyond, that you, you do take the extra time to think through what's the right thing to do uh, because you're so aware that you represent something very significant. So that means being cognizant, you have to take a step back from the exact decision you have in front of you and recognize it's not just this particular decision, but you're representing something greater. And that, that also goes back to the, the, the mindset that you were both talking about before. 
of not getting swept up in the in a moment in the tough decision, right. being able to take a step back. So let me, you had, you had an example you wanted to give? I lost my train of thought, but I have something else to say. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> New train. <laughs> um, it's part of the reason why I didn't graduate anything. Um, but the, um, you know, one of the other, like, you know, ethical, uh, some of the ethical, not challenges, but potential pitfalls. Uh, so I, we have an office in Israel, um, and um, we employ many Orthodox from Jews, um, a few in Atlanta as well. And, you know, when dealing with employees and making decisions on a, on a business, like, you know, as, as a CEO of a company, I can make a decision that could potentially just shut down a department, right? And just cut, cut this and cut that and relocate that from here and this to there. And you're, you're impacting, um, you know, people, both Jewish and non-Jewish alike, and it has, you know, has big ramifications um, across the board. So those are things that, you know, I guess it's more of like a, a, a soul-searching moral dilemmas um, that I sometimes face and sometimes have to deal with. Um, and occasionally it can turn into also like a halachic question. You know, can you just fire someone because you want to? You know, Georgia's an at-will state, right? So you can just fire people. Um, but like, can you, can, you, can you do that halachically? Can you, you know, without, without any uh, cause, can you just let someone go? Um, I don't know the answer to that, Rabbi. Maybe I should ask you that more often. Uh, <laughs> but those are like just we'll some offline. some examples, yeah. Um, um, okay, so let's move to the the, the next section, the final uh, section of the recording, um, and that is that of uh, the social challenges in the workplace. But most specifically, we're going to focus in this in this in this one on uh, what we call uh, the show of the topics. So let me just start with a disclaimer for this section. Um, so we, we're probably going to discuss a, a, a range of challenges um, and as I've said in, in other recordings my position here is not to present any halachic um, decisions and I'm not endorsing or condoning or condemning anything that uh, that we say here and all listeners are strongly encouraged to take these perspectives and ask a personal Shiloh. Everybody's situation is slightly different and don't make any assumptions. So I just want to get that across. As I said before, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, after this season is over, I'm probably going to record a halachic Torah at work se uh, session of my own where I interview myself <laughs> and, uh, and discuss some of the halachas that we've we brought up throughout these sessions. But uh, for now, I just wanted to make that point. Um, so we are in the period of uh, Shovavim. And this doesn't have to be exclusively Shovim type topics, I just wanted to introduce it. Uh, here at Beth Jacob, uh, our main theme during this Shovim period, which is the, uh, a period during the year of about six to eight weeks, if you add time, um, starting with Parsha Shmos, where many communities are working on marriage and relationships. So this year, we've chosen for our theme that of boundaries, of uh, how to set up, why to set up, uh, boundaries between uh, men and women. So Chazal termed the laws of family purity in a couple of places in the Gemara Medrash uh, of offense, it's, they called it offense of roses. So it's a very sweet connotation to it. Um, it's, de it's delicate, it's beautiful. With regards to relationships outside of marriage, perhaps more elaborate fences are needed, not just roses, maybe it has to be of a different material. Uh, so that as being the setting, my first question to Shlomo, is have you seen or experienced um, times where you've seen boundary issues 
from your position. Yes. Thank you. Shalamis. <laughs> yeah, yes. Shall I elaborate? <laughs> no, so back to Shlomo. Okay. Um, Shlomo, do you have any, any specific examples that you can share, either in detail or not in detail? Yeah, so, you know, obviously, you know, the stories and the anecdotes are, are while they're juicy um, and, and sometimes funny, um, you know, they're quite serious. And, um, you know, the, the important thing is, and this I've, and, okay, let me just give, I, I need to give my own disclaimer. Like, I'm 30, almost 35 years old. I don't have anything figured out yet. So whatever you hear from me, like just like rip it apart and don't listen to me. Okay, just make that clear. Um, what I've learned is that you need to be incredibly intentional and conscious of what can potentially happen and the attitude of no, everything's okay and I can do this and I can be that person who um, maybe lives a little bit on the edge as it relates to um, you know, opposite gender relationships or even unhealthy um, relationships in general, you have to be incredibly conscious of it and it, it happens like that and I see people get sucked into it like that, never had that intention, but if you're not, if you're not thinking about it and you're not setting a strategy, as the Masil Sisharam says, is tachbulos of, you know, you have to have and then you have to uh, strategize essentially um, and plan because if you're going into an environment, especially a culture where there are no boundaries, where the idea of a work wife or a work husband is like a joke and that's normal. What's, um, a, what's a work wife? Yeah, so if, if someone calls someone else a work wife, that means you have a problem on your hands, right? A, a, a work wife is essentially um, a relationship between a man and a woman in the workplace where they're more than just coworkers, um, where they're also a work wife. It doesn't necessarily mean something is going on, but it means there's a relationship that's more than just coworkers. That's a common term? Yeah. And that's a red flag. And that's okay. If someone thinks you're their work wife or work husband, that's like okay, you got a problem on your hands, because um, that that's not okay. Just to, I mean, if you have children and they're in school, like, is it okay for them to come home and say, oh, I have a, a high school wife, or I have, you know, we, we did a pre engagement or in in sixth grade, like no, like you know, it might be cute. It's cute up until a certain grade, and then it's not cute anymore. Um, so um, I think that. You just have to be incredibly careful to and, and to set boundaries and strategies so that you don't fall into that trap. Now, my personal take on this, and I've, and I've worked in um, Jewish offices, and I say Jewish, I mean from offices in my company where we're all Orthodox um, and men and women, all sorts across the spectrum of Judaism. So we have, uh, you know, Yeshivish, Haredi, Datilumi, Chardal, uh, I forgot there's some of the other ones. There's all sorts of things in between. Um, and men and women, coal wives, guys who just got out of coal guys who just got out of the army, all sorts of people. And it's the same exact challenges um, that the secular world faces uh, in the non-Jewish world. If anything, uh, between Jewish people, I've seen it to be even more challenging because there's a cultural um, affinity for each other where you have things that you relate to outside of the job that you're doing right now. Um, because you, you go to the same shul or you, your kids are struggling with the same, you know, uh, um, the same challenges in hashkafically in high school or whatever it may be. And there's much more there to relate. Whereas if you are, if you're, you know, if you have a coworker who you 
don't have anything out of the office that you relate to. So then you just kind of maintain this cordial, pleasant, engaging relationship that's not anything more. So the number one thing is that you have to be incredibly careful with it. I've seen everything, so I don't know if you want me to give examples. I'm not going to, but I think it's really important. And one of the things I know that I had written down um, that we're going to talk about, you know, is like me personally, um, my, my rule is in terms of handshakes, right? Shaking hands with a woman. Halakhically, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but on a practical level, my rule for myself is that if I'm in a public setting and a woman is sticking out her hand to me and she's with other people, then I'll take her hand and I'll shake her hand. Um, but in rewind for the disclaimer, by the way. What's that? I'm just telling the audience they can rewind for my disclaimer. Rewind for your, okay, right. Um, in private, if I'm, if I'm meeting with a, uh, a female one-on-one, then I'll shake her hand. I'm sorry, then I won't shake her hand. Um, and I, and, and, you know, my thing has always been is instead of, and I, and I'll share a story with this, but there's two approaches. One is to just be very apologetic and like, I'm really sorry. I can't shake your hand, but I'm, you know, I'm Jewish, you know, I don't have horns, make a joke of it. And, and, um, and that sets the tone or you can actually, you know, say, I just like to share something with you before you even, as you're walking into the room, um, I'm an Orthodox Jew and I have certain guidelines and certain things that I do or I don't do. And one of them is just a really simple one is I just don't engage in physical contact with any woman other than my wife. And it's something that's really important to me. So, um, you know, so I'm sure you're going to shake it, stri- uh, sh- stick out your hand and try to shake my hand, but I don't do that. Um, so we'll come back to a specific example. My story. Okay, minute. good. Um, Shalamis, at this table right now, you are the only woman. And uh, you've, you, I think you've noted in the past there are times that you walk into a room and uh, you are the only woman there. Yes. How, how does that make you feel and what are your, what's your initial reaction? So when we met earlier, uh, I, I had given the example, um, as you um, suggest, that a woman could walk into a room full of men, right? She's the only woman at the table and she has a choice of attitudes. She can walk into that room and say, oh my God, I'm the only woman at the table. Where do I sit? Where do I look? Do I take the papers this way? Should I sit over here? Am I too close? And in the way her attitude is projected, she's clearly very uncomfortable about being the only woman in the room. And by extension, I would think the guys are going to be equally uncomfortable because she set a certain tone. I can walk into that same room, look around, yes, I'm the only woman, but instead of saying I'm the only woman, I could say, oh my goodness, I am surrounded by a bunch of professionals. Let's all see what we can do to accomplish together, right? So I think for me, the, the important thing is to, while I always have my antenna up because yes, things can happen, for me it's about comportment, sending the message that this is how I conduct myself and I expect you to respect my boundaries. I've been, I would say I probably am incredibly naive or I've been very fortunate because I, not, I cannot pick, think of one situation in my many years of working, perhaps with the exception of one or two, um, where I really felt uncomfortable. And so it's okay to be naive in this kind of situation. Um, I did have a situation many, many years ago, I was probably, Four years out of college, I was working for an Orthodox Jewish firm in New York City. Uh, there was a, uh, a non-Jew who said something to me while I was reaching for some files, 
and I felt that there was some innuendo in his comment to me, but frankly, I didn't understand what he was talking about, and that's fine. Um, year, years later, I figured it out, and of course, I was mortified. But in retrospect, I was glad that at the time, I did not understand what he was talking about. Um, I've had a situation or two. So do you, do you think that's a better way to be? To be naive? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. If you, if you are not naive, then you better have the appropriate response and come back. Because keep in mind that often we're talking about interactions with people that you have to work with on a regular basis. And, you know, I, I think what we don't want to do is find ourselves in a trap where we confuse normal, healthy questions on the part of a guy. You walk into the office on Monday morning, somebody says to you, how was your weekend? That's fine, he is not trying to start up with you. There may be other questions that follow, or perhaps there's something in his demeanor, perhaps there's something in the way he's standing that suggests he's really more in interested in more, but simply that he's not. And I, I don't want to see women um, confuse the intent of men. And I recognize here is the only woman here. <laughs> you know, the, the perspective is going to be a little bit different coming from a man versus a woman, and that's okay. Um, I did have a situation many years ago. Actually, it was a function. Uh, it was a, a dance at a function. It was actually at the Fern Bank many years ago. And a fellow asked me to dance. And um, I simply smiled, always with a smile, right, as you suggested. And I said, you know, my husband has filled my dance card. <laughs> now, he wasn't there, but he keeps me busy. <laughs> um, so th these are the sorts of things that you can manage um, with a smile, look them in the face, be direct, make it very clear what your standards are. There are certainly times when you have to escalate to human resources or to your boss. But I would suggest that those are very few and far between. I think, yeah, I'm, about the smile, my brother, Moshe, is a musician, and he's, a, he's got like no inhibitions, and he's all about smiling and loving everybody. And he, he's, he told me this recently, and I repeated it to you the other night, uh, which was your face is public property. So you don't own your face. Everyone else is looking at your face, so you have to smile. Um, I struggle with that, because I, I'm socially awkward sometimes, and I, just, like, I don't just walk around smiling madly. Um, but uh, sounds pretty awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but going back to this whole, you know, um, what I what I what I like to do in for myself and with um, you know peers or employees that I'm that I am talking to about relationship challenges is not to formulate it about the potential relationship, but to focus more on the perception, because that to me is the strategy, and it always comes up with you know you have a team lead and then the team lead has five employees who they work with on a daily basis. And all of a sudden, there's a perception of there's something going on, or there's like some sort of relationships a little too much, or it could be too much. Uh, but of course, if you say, "Hey, you know what's going on here? Nothing's going on. We're just friends, you know, or we're just, you know," there's not, but there's a perception of it. So when you are talking like strategically and you're thinking strategically, do I want to be perceived as the guy or the girl who's in a relationship with someone at work or has crossed a line? Or do I want to be perceived as someone who maintains that boundary? Do I want my boss to see me that way? Do I want my peers to see me that way? Um, one very powerful question that I've had, I've asked people, and um, 
has been, you know, if your husband or if your wife were with you right now, watching you and watching you behave, would you be okay with what you're doing? Um, and it's always a no, no way, no way. And all of a sudden, everything becomes crystal clear. You know what's wrong. People and, will, will, re, will react to that right away. Okay. Yeah, yep. because there's small nuances. You know, I'll I'll give you a few a few tips. You know, like one thing that's very clear. If someone starts offering to bring you food or make you food or pick up food for you more than once, certainly cook you food, there's something wrong there, right? That's not a normal working relationship. If you ask someone as you see them going out to get lunch and you say, hey, can you pick me up something? Can you get me something? Okay, that's okay, right? But if someone is on their own and if it's persisting more than once, that is a sign that there's something there that might be more. Um, you know, in-depth questions about your personal life. Yes, how was your weekend? How was your Shabbos? How was it? Great, wonderful. But then taking it to the next level and it's not someone who you're a close family friend with, that's already starting to, you know, to, to stink. If it smells like a fish, it's a fish. That's like the number one thing. So you gotta be very careful um, with that. And I think that the perception is something that's really important. Going back to my story, because I like my story. So um, there's a guy who works for me, he's a great guy, his name is Chad. Um, and we do company events, uh, we do two, three times a year. We do different company events. We try to do a barbecue once a year uh, where everyone brings their kids. We try to find a park that's big enough for us. And the first time we did something here, my wife was here, Chad got all excited, came running over to my wife, Elisheva, and just gave her a big hug and a kiss. And she didn't know like, what to do. She was just so taken aback, she, she, she just froze. Um, and, I, and he realized immediately, it all clicked. He's like, oh, I wasn't supposed to do that. So instead of being apologetic, and I said this before, and I wasn't mad at him, I wasn't upset, I just, I didn't apologize. I said, hey, Chad, I just wanna let you know that X, Y, and Z, right? Like, like my wife and I, we refrain from touching um, any physical contact, so I appreciate it, you noticed it, but great, wonderful. The difference that it had versus, it's okay, Chad, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, like for him to make, it's almost as if I'm apologizing that he had to go the extra mile to not hug or kiss my wife or even shake her hand, or for that matter, for if it was me and a, and, and a female, I found that when you're um, proactive about it and not apologetic, it sets the tone, not in an arrogant way, but in an unapologetic way. Why do, why do I have to apologize for my religious belief? So coming from that point, it brings so much more respect. And uh, another story that I just had recently is uh, there's someone who I interviewed for a number of months and eventually hired, and she's starting with us in a little bit. And in our first meeting, I set the tone because I know that I, I liked her and I wanted to hire her. Um, and I set the tone that, you know, I don't, you know, this is who I am. This is my religious thing. I don't shake hands and no physical contact. Um, about two weeks later, she emails me Sunday morning. And in her email, she wrote, I wasn't sure if I was allowed to email you over the weekend because I know there's something called your Shabbat. So that's why I'm emailing you now to respond to your question that you emailed me on Friday. Now, I didn't say anything about Shabbos. I didn't do anything, but she took the initiative, and she's from Noonan, Georgia, so she doesn't know anything about Jewish, nothing. Um, and, Jews, okay, just a few, Jew, <laughs> but, but uh, um, you know, she took, she was, she took enough away from our interaction to go research what is a Jew, like what, and probably she saw Shabbos right away, um, and it was extremely impactful. Not only that, in subsequent conversations, she referenced it in a very positive way. So I found that to be. Um, you know, I guess the, to wrap up what I'm saying, number one, perceptions. So if you're, if you, if you think that there's something there, or if you think that someone else might see something else, then that's, that's probably a red flag. 
um, and manage the perception, not necessarily what you think the reality is. And the second thing is, is the unapologetic um, for your religion and your religious beliefs. Uh, by the way, no other religion is. If you meet people from other religion, religions, like they throw it in your face like all the time, you know, and like they're proud of it, not apologetic. And there are some segments of Judaism that maybe are less apologetic than others. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, whenever I'm like out there in the world, I'm always like, I always kind of like want to maintain a low profile, and I feel like I'm a little bit apologetic about my Judaism. I was once in Las Vegas for a conference, and and I was and I was like very uncomfortable walking in. I don't know why. I was very uncomfortable walking into a casino with my yarmulke on, and I hadn't been in too many casinos before that. And I walk in, and there's Hasidim everywhere, and <laughs> there's kosher food. <laughs> I mean, and I was like, and and then and I had made a decision to wear my yarmulke, and I was doing a lot of networking, and it was a big event. Um, and, and I wore my yarmulke and I wore it proudly and, and identifying as a Jew in an environment like that was a very powerful experience for me. And since then I, I always do it, you know, I'm always like, like I wear my yarmulke, I wear my, I'm outwardly Jewish, I address it if I'm in a meeting and, and like, you know, I'm, I'm with some guys from the middle of nowhere who don't know about anything about Judaism. So I'll address it and I'll say, hey, I'm Jewish and here's what it means and so on and so forth. So I, I like that unapologetic tone. Nice, unapologetic. With a smile. With a smile. And look them in the face. Yes. Absolutely. So they know that you're being sincere and that they know that you're not in any way meaning to disrespect them, right? So um, I come at it a slightly different way and probably need to uh, ask the audience to rewind the tape to listen to Rabbi Foxbrunner's caveat. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I do shake hands. Um, I... My perspective is one that I, I, I just don't want to ever embarrass um, someone. And I, I actually struggled with whether or not to surface it today. But the reason that I'm bringing it up today is, as we spoke earlier, there's a new concept out there called hugging. <laughs> and many of us in the workplace know that for whatever reason, both men and women have taken on hugging, whereas they used to reach out and shake hands. And so we are now looking at an escalation. So I could suggest that um, handshaking is like a defensive tool now, um, you know, to prevent the hugging because you just know when that guy is going to lean into you, you stick out your hand to shake it and it stops him. You know, I, I actually don't know why women want to hug either. I, I'm not sure that it's. Um, <laughs> It, it, it's necessary in the workplace. Um, I, I would prefer the more traditional ways of exchanging, um, you know, the fact that we're recognizing one another and uh, what we're trying to do here. But having said that, there is hugging out there. And so one way to stave it off is simply to reach out and shake the hand. I will tell you that many years ago, I, I had a student at Tamima High School who uh, came to me. She was starting to uh, work, um, and she really did not want to shake hands with anybody, so we worked through that. I certainly would never, ever impose my um, practices on um, others, and we worked through it, and she came back to me after she had gotten the job, and she explained that she and her boss had come up with an alternative to handshaking that was kind of their, their secret code. Um, they, uh, every time they pass each other in the hall, they simply salute one another. And this was their way of recognizing one another as professionals, as colleagues, 
and uh, he thought it was a hoot, and she was able to uh, maintain her personal standards. Rewind the tape. <laughs> so as we um, as we near the the passing the hour mark, um, and I do want to leave a little bit of time for questions. Let's just end on a on a uh, on a high note. We've dealt with a lot of challenges. We've had some fascinating conversations, some really great, insightful tips, practical ideas. Um, I would just want to end off um, going back to the beginning when we talked about your jobs in general. So I just if you can quickly answer the question of what drives you and what, what, what makes you feel good at the end of the day uh, in your profession. Shalom. So what drives me is that I, a couple of things. Number one, I, I simply enjoy the subject matter. I enjoy looking at something and figuring out what are the pros and cons, what are the strengths and weaknesses. There's just so much talent out there, and how can we tap into that talent to improve safety all around? And the second thing that drives me, I enjoy coaching and teaching and mentoring. And so I have a fairly large department, and I just derive tremendous amount of pleasure uh, passing on the knowledge that I have. Shlomo? Um. It's a good question. I've done. A, I've actually done a lot of work around. You know what drives me. I know it's not money. Um, I know that I'd like to be comfortable, and uh, but it's not that. Um, you know the things that drive me on a day-to-day -day basis um, are, are really seeing the. You know I feel like that I was introduced to this whole idea that you can learn, and and maybe just because I had my my childhood was not necessarily one of learning. I mean, I learned a lot, but I wasn't in a structured environment where I felt like I was learning from others. I was just—I was more of like a street, street smart, street kid. Um, and when I, as I got older, and I started to realize that I can actually apply other people's wisdom to um, to get to grow and to be better and to develop my character and also achieve things. And helping others do that is is probably my 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 largest driver. So within my company, um, we have a. Our motto is people, product, uh, and then profit. So without the people, then our product is nothing. And without a good product, then we don't have any profit. Versus how do I make as much money as possible? Um, and that's been something that, that really is impactful for me. Um, also within what we do, um, I, I'm really driven by, you know, happens to be in the vertical that I'm involved in. I don't necessarily have a passion for home services. I have a passion for trying to provide value in a market that is fragmented and is, um, you know, broken. It is hard to hire a good contractor. It's really difficult and really stressful. I don't have all the answers yet, but we're working very hard, and solving that problem is, is something that, that really drives me on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you very much. I want to thank both of you um, for your for the time we took to prepare and also the time we took to present. And the truth of the matter is. We really could have had a full session with either one of you. And I, just sitting in the seat, it's been a challenge to try to make sure that we hear both of your voices because you both have such amazing things to, to say. Maybe we'll have to have a part two. Uh, that said, I want to thank you again. Um, and uh, we'll, if there are any questions from the audience or if you'd like to ask each other, each other any questions, you know, we can, uh, we can do that. Yes, Joel. So uh, um, when you think of yourself as as Jewish, um, do you think that the folks who, who, who interact with you on a day-to-day -day basis or somebody you're um, meeting for the first time, are they interacting with you differently because you're Jewish? And if so, how do you, how do you think about it and deal with it? Uh, well, let me start. Um, 
I, I think the uh, I think the answer is yes and no, and 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 that's okay because there are times when you really don't want them to look at you and see you Jewish. They, you want them to see you as a professional. The kinds of situations in which it comes up tends to be around Yuntif and Shabbos, and uh, we've talked about this. How can you demonstrate that you're a team player when you're taking off seven or eight days in September and October? That's really tough, uh, especially in the early years of your career. And so you have to be very mindful of the fact that uh, you need to impress upon them how you can make it up, how you won't let them down. Um, I like to say Yom Kippur is no excuse for missing a deadline, right? So you're, uh, you're more mindful about it in those instances. But in the ordinary course of things, I'd like to think that it's simply your behavior that reflects well, and whether they think about you as a Jew or not, you know what's driving you. Does that answer your question? Shalom, anything to add? Um, what was the question again? Was do I see? Do we see people interacting with us differently because we are Jewish? Yeah, I mean, in your perception, do you think that people are interacting with you differently? Oh, this Jewish guy, this Jewish lady, you know, whatever. And if so, you know, either how do you deal with it, or what's that interaction all about? Right. Um, so from the Jews, yes. So I see it more from the Jewish people, uh, ironically. Uh, from the non-Jews, you know, sometimes there's a distinction, um, sometimes for the positive, sometimes for the negative. With the negative, it's usually never, I've never had it outright, but I've certainly felt a uh, dismissiveness or a lack of wanting to do anything with, uh, with me or with us, whether it was a, a business development deal or, or um, but, you know, maybe because I'm the boss, so my employees are just nicer about it, but we, you know, I really have, um, have built like friendships and you know the right types of friendships um, and relationships <laughs> with many of my employees and who are majority are not Jewish, um, but ironically the I've had more challenges with Jewish people who may not necessarily be of the same um, uh, Jewish bent that I am, so religious or not or even different types of religious. Um, so that's that's been something that's been interesting to me over the years. There's like more judgment because my yarmulke is felt, or is this felt? I don't know. It's black. It's black. Yeah, I don't know what that means. And yet, one more question. Tell a uh, high school kid who's listening to this podcast who's thinking about dropping out about staying in school. So huh? you've, you've inspired all listeners to drop out of school, and uh, and they'll lead you straight to CEO of. Yeah. So yeah, don't company. don't don't do that. That's for sure. Um, I, I said before, I mean, there's, there's an element of luck, and I haven't, like, uh, I mean, I'm honored to sit here on this panel, but I haven't made it by any stretch of the imagination. So, um, you know, like, I, I don't necessarily think that, uh, no, you should absolutely not drop out of, out of school. Um, and more than that, um, I think that there's some things that I lack that I regret because I don't have an education, um, you know, particularly around you know, you know, some of my, my ability to express myself in concise, short sentences, which I think you learn with proper education. You learn how to write a thesis, you have to write a paper, and you have to, you learn communication, not necessarily by learning communication, but by the process of being in school or getting a college degree. And mentoring. Yes. Mentoring. Final comment, uh, Yes, I think I speak for 
uh, Shlomo, I, we would be remiss in not uh, recognizing the sponsorship tonight. So if you look at the website for Beth Jacob, it notes that Gavin Elman sponsored this evening in honor of Lisa, and I quote, and all spouses without whom none of this would be possible. So we just want to recognize Elisheva and Jonathan. None of what we do here, none of what we've talked about would be possible without the Almighty above and with our spouses. Amen. Perfect ending. Thank you very much.